what we hope to do over the next several weeks is to really get our hearts ready for what Christmas is really supposed to be about. You know, Advent has been celebrated throughout Christendom for at least 1,500 years. And Advent is the coming of a significant person. The season of Advent in Christian churches is a time of preparation and expectant waiting to celebrate the coming of the most significant person in history, the coming of Jesus into this world. So the Christmas holiday or holy day celebrates that God visited this world as a baby in a manger and grew into the man who would save the world. Technically, Christmas is the first coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus, though, Christmas, should also remind us of the second coming, the, the coming that is yet to come. Advent, therefore, is a time to focus on the promise of Jesus that he's coming back to complete what he started when he came the first time. So the four Sundays leading up to Christmas are the four Sundays of Advent, and each Sunday traditionally emphasizes a specific theme. These four themes, which we'll focus on in coming weeks, are hope, peace, joy, and love. It's a pretty nice thing to focus on for four weekends, isn't it? Hope, peace, joy, and love. These themes remind us of what Jesus brought to our world and our lives when he came and how all of this will be consummated once and for all when he comes again. So Jesus, as this series that we're launching today will focus on, Jesus came for you and for us all and he brought hope and peace and joy and love. Today, I want to spend my time focused on on, pardon me, on hope. And the simple idea is this, that because of Jesus, we can have hope. Because Jesus came to this world, did what he did through his life, his uh, dying, his burial, and his resurrection, because of Jesus, we can have hope. So, there's a wonderful passage in Paul's letter to the Romans that I, I love. I've, I've, I've taught about it in one way or another a number of times over the years. I come back to this paradigm that I'll lay out here in a few minutes many times in my own personal devotional life. It's a kind of a lens through which I see the world. It's where the Apostle Paul talks about hope and kind of the results of hope in our lives. It's Romans 5, verse 1 through 5. He begins it like this. Since we have been made right with God by our faith, we have peace with God. This happened through our Lord Jesus Christ, who through our faith has brought us into that blessing of God's grace that we now enjoy. Now, while that's still up on the screen, let me take a moment and just kind of Talk about, in brief, what this passage is saying, and then I'm going to get into the real text for the day. First of all, Paul says that through Jesus, we have been made right with God, and that we have peace with God. Now, this idea of peace, as we frequently discuss around here, is not just the absence of conflict. 
When, when we're told that we have peace with God, it doesn't just mean that God isn't angry at us or something, but peace with God here is related to the idea of shalom, which has to do with everything working together the way it was meant to work. That's what shalom means. When we're told that we have peace with God, it talks about a whole new state of things, a, 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 a new relationship with God where, where we have an expectation that everything in our life begins to work harmoniously together in the way that God intended for it to work. Through Jesus, we begin to taste that and as we grow in our relationship with Jesus, we experience that more and more in our lives. It's part of what happens as we grow in our faith. So again, the Apostle Paul says, through Jesus, we've been made right with God. We have peace with God. Things are beginning to work in our lives now and will forever the way God intended for it to happen. And he said that we can enjoy the blessing of this now. We begin to taste this reality in our lives now. And then he goes on to say this, and we are happy because of the hope we have of sharing God's glory. Let me, let me focus on that just for a moment. That's the uh, New Century Version translation. I happen to like the, the phraseology there. We are happy because of the hope we have of sharing in God's glory. So when we talk about God's glory, definitionally, we're talking about God's self-revelation. We're talking about who he is and what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. God's glory is God showing off, if you please, who he is through his mighty works, through past, during, present, and into the future. So the writer, Paul, says we are happy because of the hope we have of being a part of who God is and what God is doing in the world. Now we can talk about that in a big picture way, but we also can talk about that in terms of what we hope good to see happen in our lives this week or even later today. We, 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 we talk about the big picture of God's glory and what he's going to work out through eternity, but we extrapolate back from that into our everyday lives. And any time we hope that God's working in our life in some way to bring his purposes to pass or some good thing to pass in our lives, we are or should be happy. We are happy because of the hope we have of sharing in God's glory. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, not only so, and now this sounds like a downer, but it's actually not, but not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So he talks about how that we are happy because of the hope we have. And then he says not only that, but we also are happy, basically, or we glory in our sufferings. We persevere. Our experience caused character to be built. And then we come back again to a type of hope that causes us to not be put ashamed. I see a pattern in this that 
I've seen work through in my life and in other people's lives many, many times. This is a big idea to me. I'll call it the hope cycle. The hope cycle. It begins with hope. It moves to suffering. It moves to perseverance. It moves to the building of character. And it moves back to hope. And I think if you'll listen to me over the next few moments, you'll see this pattern being worked out in our lives in many, many ways. So I'm going to talk about each of these pieces over the next few moments. I'm going to talk about hope. I'm going to talk about suffering. I'm going to talk about perseverance. I'm going to talk about character. And I'm going to talk about hope again. Okay? Is everybody still awake? Everybody all right? By the way, big congratulations to all the folks in this room who defied the weather prognostication of apocalyptic first storm of the year, <gasps> breathless TV commentators. Oh, they drive me crazy. God bless them, all the weather people. And here you showed up anyway, a pretty nice group here at 11 o'clock. I'm glad you're here. Uh, in all seriousness, I mean, they, they make it sound so bad. It, it, I, I'm glad you showed up. And all the folks watching online, I'm glad you're watching online. Hope everybody's safe and well. All right, so let's talk about hope for a few minutes. So um, the cycle of hope starts with hope. I, I, I was reminded last week after uh, my talk by someone of a, of, a, of a story that they had heard me tell some time ago that seemed worth telling again. It's a story about two little boys uh, raised in the same family. One was an extreme optimist and the other was an extreme pessimist, really extreme, to such an extent that these boys' parents decided to take them to a psychiatrist to get them to come to some place of moderation in their extreme pessimism and optimism. So they, the, the, the psychiatrist uh, was pretty creative, and he decided that, that the way that he would first of all try to help the pessimist was to take him to a, a room that was packed full, overflowing with new toys. They were heaped up in the room. You would have had to literally climb up on top of the pile to get to the one at, at the top. And uh, this little extreme pessimistic boy looked at that room full of toys and he burst into tears. And the psychiatrist, of course, was confused and he said, you know, what's wrong? What could, don't you want to play with the toys? And the little boy said, uh, crying, I, I, I want to play with the toys, but I'm afraid I might break them. The psychiatrist tried other ways to help him to no avail. He started to work with this other kid who was extremely pessimistic, and uh, he took him to a room full of fresh horse manure, piled up horse manure, and this little optimistic boy, when, when he saw it, uh, climbed up on top, laughing all, with all of his might, and starts digging in this pile, with bringing out great scoops. And the psychiatrist stops him and said, what, what, why, why are you so excited? And the little boy said, well, I know with this much horse manure here, there must be a pony in here somewhere. If these two boys were real, which one do you think would be happier? We instinctively know, don't we, that the little boy who believed that something could, good could be found in a room full of dung would undoubtedly be happier than the boy who couldn't find pleasure even in a room full of toys. And what we know 
from all kinds of research that's been done in recent decades is that any person who has positive expectations about good things happening in their future is more than likely a happy person. And we know that a hopeful and happy person has a much greater possibility of being motivated to act toward actualizing those good things. It was the venerable scholar of New Testament words, W.E. Vine, who defined the Greek word hope as the happy anticipation of good. The happy anticipation of good. Hope is the happy feeling we get. When we think about the good things that God has planned for our future in spite of the mess of this world, an overwhelming amount of scientific research shows that our very physiology responds to hope. I wrote uh, this paragraph in my book, The Hospital Leader, and I come back to it every once in a while because I, I, I like the way this conveys this idea. When we hope, the neurotransmitter dopamine is released, focusing us on what we hope for and moving us to take action toward our dreams. As we hope, serotonin and endorphins pump through our beings and we feel pleasure. Thinking hopeful thoughts actually changes the structure of our brains and shapes our DNA in a positive direction. Hope is a dopamine-producing, serotonin-releasing, endorphin-level-raising, brain-restructuring, DNA-shaping, happiness-elevating, miracle drug. And followers of Jesus have hope in this life and the hope and hope in life beyond. See, when we're sharing in God's glory, we know that in spite of of all the difficulties of this world, there's a pony in there somewhere. We know that there are good and beautiful things in this world now that we can hope for, and even better, we know that in our eternal futures, the good and beautiful things that now exist in this world will be all that remains in the world to come. Someday, life will be all ponies and no manure. I know that's not a very intellectual thought, but the fact is, after the second coming, we're going to live in a renewed heaven and earth. All the bad will be gone. Only the good will remain. As the prophet Isaiah wrote, God said, Behold, I create the heavens and the earth all over again. Be glad and rejoice in forever in what I create in my new world. Every kind of evil will be eliminated. See, one of the most hopeful thoughts that we can have is that at the end of time, after the second coming of Jesus, evil will be judged and evil will be done away with. Think about anything bad on this planet. It will no longer be here. Life will be as God meant for it to be in the beginning. So think about it. Injustice, gone. Sickness, gone. Racism, gone. Abortion, gone. Guilt, gone. Poverty, gone. Division between peoples, gone. Even death itself, gone. No more mess. Only ponies. Only what's good will remain. This is part of what should stimulate our hope and present happiness. It's to know that even in spite 
of what's going wrong in this world, the day is coming when everything will be put right. And not only that, we can taste it now. And we especially taste it now when we hope for the better world that's yet to come. See, part of what's important about hope is to know that hope is in the anticipation. There's not time to get into this today, but there, 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 there's a lot of research that's been done about the fact that people are not happiest when they get a thing that they've been hoping for. They're happiest when they're anticipating getting the thing that they're hoping for. That doesn't mean that there isn't an initial raising of happiness when you get the thing you've been hoping for, but it doesn't, it's not sustained over a long period of time unless you start hoping for more, okay? So, so happiness really lives in the space of hope. It's anticipation that causes us to be happy. And part of how God built our present reality is he built us to be sitting on the edge of our seats in anticipation of a future that is better than the present. Again, we think about this in the big picture of life, but if, if we follow this principle, we think about it as it relates to things we hope for later today, later this week, later this month, next year, five years from now. But ultimately, we're always hoping, anticipating, thinking about the better world that's to come. Paul wrote to the Romans this. Listen to the language here that's about looking forward, anticipating, eagerly waiting, hoping. He wrote concerning the world to come. All creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. Now that we are saved, we eagerly look forward to this freedom. For if you already have something, you don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't have yet, we must wait patiently and confidently, and the Holy Spirit helps us, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So there are many things that we don't yet have. But happiness is in the anticipation of the better thing to come. And it's knowing that in spite of what we see, God is constantly at work, working out his purposes, revealing his glory in the minute details of our life and in the big picture of the world in which we live. So Proverbs tells us the hopes of the godly result in happiness. All right, so we're, we start the cycle of hope by talking about hope, and we understand the importance of cultivating high hope levels, knowing that happiness in spite of circumstances is found when we're able to look for the good that is possible in our future. All right, now let's move to the second part of this hope cycle. So again, Romans 5, we begin with the Apostle Paul saying that, uh, that uh, we are happy because of the hope we have. But then he moves to another concept that doesn't seem hopeful at all. Because then he says, and we also glory in our sufferings. Romans 5 verse 3. 
and we also glory in our suffering. So this is all sounding so good, right? This is so optimistic. We're at hope and we're happy and even if we don't see it, we find happiness and the anticipation. But then he talks, he moves from hope to sufferings. I want to talk for a few minutes now about a certain kind of suffering. I call it proactive suffering. Now, we could talk about suffering on many levels. Things that happen to us, um, life, uh, things that happen that, that we may not even have anything to do with where, where we're suffering. Um, I might call it reactive suffering. Something happens and we react to it and the reality is that we suffer. All of us have seasons and times of suffering in our lives in that regard. I, 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 that's an important topic. That's not what I, that's not what I'm going to talk about right now and talk about suffering. I think in the context of this passage, I want to talk about suffering that results from hope. I'll call it proactive suffering. I believe that we not only suffer when we don't have a thing and we hope for it, that there is a, that there's a, there's a, there's a, both a happiness but yet an angst found in that, but we also suffer in a particular kind of way when we get what we hope for. And I don't think there's enough focus put on this concept. We often suffer in a particular kind of way when we get what we hope for. The Apostle Peter said, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. It, I, I say that to simply make this point. Sometimes we suffer because we did good. Sometimes we suffer because we had success. Sometimes we suffer because we get what we asked for. In fact, I will maintain that that's almost, almost always true. To illustrate the illustration I've used before, but it's been a long time ago. Uh, years ago, I traveled to Rwanda with a group of pastors and leaders from New York City to do some teaching on leadership, to learn, and uh, uh, to find out how we could better serve there. And on the end of our trip, we tagged on a safari in the Maasai Mora of Kenya. When I said that in the first service, there were some Kenyans sitting right here in the middle row, Amy, where you're sitting, and they burst out laughing. I'm evidently not saying that right, which wouldn't be unusual. I have pronunciation issues, as my kids will happily tell you. And uh, we, we went on safari in this beautiful game reserve in Kenya, the place where Out of Africa was filmed. It was fabulous. Well, one morning, uh, we got up early, as, as you do on these things, and in an open-sided Jeep, started traveling and our guide came uh, to a place where a lion was resting in the shade and he parked our jeep about 10 feet from this lion and turned it off and um, this is what uh, my friend brian anderson filmed this <laughs> we found the lion simba always in the shade of another jeep i forgot that oh so that's a male huh on it. Here, kitty, 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 kitty. Over here. <laughs> hey, kitty, 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 kitty. Simba. He probably wouldn't like it if we go over there, huh? Indian Beatrice, this lion is only 10 feet from us. Fortunately, he's not hungry. We proved that because Pasta got out and he didn't eat him. Would you look 
kitty, 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 kitty. Over here. Hey, kitty, 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 kitty. Let's hear a roar. Okay, okay, okay. Let's go. Oh, oh, oh. 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 Whoa. <laughs> there was some moving around in this truck. That is called getting what you ask for and not knowing what to do when it happened. Now, this has become a stark mental picture for me. What happens when we get what we hope for, when we want something and it comes to us and we're frightened by it? You may, you may not see that as a cause for suffering, but I promise you, that's a cause of a lot of proactive suffering in our lives. Example, a young woman says, Lord, give me a husband. I want a husband. Please, God, give me a husband. Give me, give me, give me a husband. And God gives her a husband. They get married, and a year later, and she's saying, oh, God, why'd you give me this husband? Right? And the fact is that even the best of marriages have a, a certain level, perhaps even a great deal of suffering. This is just life. Alan Loy McGinnis, the great writer uh, on, on, on love and romance, wrote that uh, any marriage that lasts over a long period of time is a marriage where two people have learned how to endure a high level of suffering. Now, now th th and, and this is just reality. That doesn't mean that there isn't romance. It doesn't mean that there isn't passion. It doesn't mean that there aren't many wonderful things. But I'll guarantee you that when two people try to become one person and live that out over the course of decades, there is a, if, if you're not prepared to suffer the dying to your own will and your own independence and your own needs and your own whatever, the marriage isn't going to last. I'm, that's an example of someone getting what they ask for and then when they get what they ask for, it brings new levels of suffering. A couple uh, wants to have a baby. Uh, uh, they pray for a baby. They have a baby. And they find out over the course of years. They don't find this out. You may think that the suffering of having the baby is the suffering of them keeping you up at night, maybe a little bit in the first few months. Well, welcome to a lifetime of interesting challenge. Because what every parent finds out is that their children are absolutely their greatest source of joy without question and their greatest source of pain over the course of a lifetime. I'm not talking about constantly, but I'm talking about there are times. Maybe it's just watching your kids suffer through something difficult in their own life. You feel that pain as a parent in a way that nobody can understand unless you've watched your children suffer through pain. I'm just saying that you, you get something beautiful, but with it comes new levels of challenges. An entrepreneur has a dream to build a business and they have an idea, and in fact, they, they launch the, the business. There's an initial and profound rush of victory, but that victory is followed by years of perplexities. How do you raise capital to fund this new opportunity? How do you staff it? How do you operate it? How do you sustain it? How do you scale it? How do you replicate it? Years of challenges wrapped with years of new victory. If, if you, I, I guarantee you, you talk to a business owner, they, and, and if they feel called to business, they find great joy in their business, and they also suffer through trying to figure out how to do all the things it takes to have a business. Do you get my point? Sometimes our prayer life is like, here, kitty, 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 kitty. 
And then all of a sudden, what we ask for happens, and it's wonderful, and it's disruptive. It's full of joy, and it brings a certain level of suffering. And by the way, if you're not suffering in some area of your life, hopefully not other, every area, but in some area of life, because of some good that you're doing, you're missing out on an important part of life. That's part of the result of hope. So we've, it's like the Christian mystic Teresa, uh, Teresa of Avila said, there are more tears shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. Now, I don't know that I would build a theology on that, but it's an interesting perspective. Oscar Wilde expressed similar sentiments when he wrote that in this world there are only two tragedies. One is not getting what one wants, the other is getting it. So, we know that we'll face resistance while we are hoping and working for a thing, but we also should know that every new level of success brings new levels of challenges, which we must face with new levels of hope. So, now we have the opportunity, once we enter suffering, to hit the next part of the cycle of hope, which is perseverance. The only way to move from hope back to even higher hope is to persevere through the suffering that comes as a result of hope. And the key to perseverance is actually hope. The key to working through suffering, the key to, to, to persevering, the key to having character build, as I'll discuss briefly in a moment, is always hope. But it's certain that the key to perseverance is hope. We're told in, in, in the letter to the Thessalonians, we remember before our God your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how is it that hope helps us to endure? Where hope is what sustains us. When we're able to see potential success on the other side of the suffering, then we're able to endure and persevere. This is what Jesus did in an ultimate sense when he suffered in the ultimate way. We're told in the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament that he was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterward. Another translation has it like this. He endured the shame of being nailed to a cross because he knew that later on he would be glad he did. See, understand this. I'm proposing that even and especially during the most difficult of times that you focus on the joy set before you. When the resistance seems to feel like you cannot persevere, you must pray and meditate on the good that you hope for. And, 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 and you are happy then because of the hope you have. Not because things are going well, but because you see joy on the other side of the difficulty. And then when you cultivate hope like that, you can endure anything. Listen, if we're fortunate, we all face adversity as a result of our dreams. If we're fortunate, there's, there's a, a new body of research um, that has arisen in relatively recent years that identifies uh, something that they're calling post-traumatic growth syndrome. 
There's been so much work done on post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is a very real thing, obviously, and in a very important world of study and treatment. But, but, uh, but just in the last probably two decades, uh, there, there's been a lot of research done on how people grow through trauma. And in fact, how that if, if people can get in a proper mindset about the stories they tell themselves about what they've been through, that they especially experience tremendous growth through difficult times. That adversity now, research will actually show, does help people if they'll, if they'll persevere through it, get better, reach new levels in their personal development and in the success of their life. Several years ago, um, I, was, um, I was being interviewed on a radio station in Detroit, Michigan, and it was around uh, the release of my, my book, Live 10. It's been some time ago, and the message of Live 10 is very positive and optimistic, and, and you know, so I, you know, it was, it was a long interview, talk radio, if I, as I remember right, and, um, and at some point in the interview, the, the guy asked me the question, he said, have you ever had a dream that failed? I don't know why this sticks in my mind of all the, the kind of interactions I've had like that over the years, but he said, have you, have you ever had a dream that failed? And I knew what he was looking for. He was looking for authenticity. Who wants to hear somebody just tell the stories of their success, right? Because we all know that in the sausage making, there's always a lot of grossness, right? And so no one ever gets to any positive place in their life without going through all kind of stuff. So, so he knew that, and I know that, but when he asked me the question, had I ever had a dream that failed, I couldn't think of anything in that moment. And I remember feeling so embarrassed as I'm scrambling around in my mind to tell this interviewer something that I, his audience needed to hear was, was how I had experienced some big failure in my life. And I don't remember what I said. I was tempted to make something up. But somehow or another, we survived and we went on. And I, and I, I gave some thought to that later. It didn't take me long to, to, to think about a number of situations in my life when I felt tremendous failure, tremendous failure. But somehow, somehow, over time, what, what felt like failure ended up looking more like success. And when I thought back to the story, all I could remember was the end result and whatever good thing had happened. I don't know if I can tell this very well. I, I, I find myself struggling to explain this, except to say that I, there are things that I experienced where maybe three, four, five years, I had some dream that looked like it had crashed and burned. Now, I could get into specifics now because I've done a lot of thinking about it, but I'm not going to. I'll just say the years where it's something I dreamed for looked like an utter failure, but somehow... Over time, that dream maybe looked different than I thought it would initially, and, and therefore what success was defined differently, or maybe someday just some breakthrough happened. But as I look back and tell the story to myself, I don't think very much about the four or five years when I got up every day and felt like a failure in that part of my life. I think about 
the good thing that ended up happening. And here's what I've had, this thought about myself. How can I get myself during those inevitable seasons when it looks like the thing I'm dreaming for has, is crashing and burning? How can I get myself to feel the same way in the middle of that suffering as I know by God's grace I will feel on the other side when I look back because I know God's going to work this out. He's always has somehow or another this thing's going to come to pass see this is what jesus did again in a much bigger way but he was able to suffer because he knew there was joy that was set before him we need to start telling ourselves stories of our future success when we feel like a failure because if you're attempting anything big in your life you will go through long seasons where you feel like it's never going to happen but this is where we have to persevere. We're talking to ourselves about the success that we know that God will give us. And then here's the next thing that happens. What happens then is we, we then go to this next stage of hope, which is called character. So again, here's what Paul said in Romans 5, 2, 3, 4, 5. He said, we are happy because of the hope we have to be involved in who God is and what he's doing now and forever. And not only that, but we also glory in our sufferings. And then he said, and suffering works perseverance, and then perseverance works character, and then character brings us back to a hope to which we're not ashamed. So character is what gets produced during this cycle that allows us to be prepared to experience more good in our lives than we could have before we entered this cycle of hope. Here's what James said. He said, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. For when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. Note that language. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be strong in character and ready for anything. Now, guys, remember that God is more interested in his character being formed in us than he is in any of our dreams coming true. And it's only when his character is formed in us that we can be, as James wrote, ready for anything. Now, when we talk about character, we can talk about character in this sense in two ways. We can talk about character as everybody in the world would, and it's a worthy way to talk about it. Strong moral constitution, good character. We all have a sense of what it means when we say that person has character. But in a scriptural sense, and in particular in the passage I just read in James 1, when we're talking about character, we're talking about uh, uh, other translations of the word character there. We'll talk about being complete um, be, or being fully developed. When we're talking about character here, we're talking now about, about a dimension of character that's only available to somebody who's in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is where the very character of Jesus is developed in us, where we are looked at by God as being complete. And when the character of Jesus is developed in us, that's when we are truly, as the passage says, ready for anything. But sadly, it's only through 
enduring suffering, hopefully enduring suffering, that our character has an opportunity to develop to where, especially as we trust in Jesus, the very character of Jesus is developed in us so that God looks at us and says, you are ready for anything. I suspect that there are people who are sitting in this room now who have dreams that perhaps you're not quite ready for yet. But God and his love is allowing you to experience things that are developmental in nature. You're looking at them as troubles. You're looking at them, understandably, I understand. You're looking at them as setbacks. You're looking at them perhaps right now in this season of your life as a failure. And you don't understand that God in his love is looking at you and he doesn't see a failure. He sees a success and he has great dreams for your life. But he's got to get you ready for the level of success that is potentially yours. So when you're suffering in attempting to achieve your God-given dreams, you have to persevere long enough enough. Don't exit the game too soon. Persevere long enough for the character of Jesus to be developed in your life so God can look at you and say, you're ready now. You're ready. You're ready. Here's James 1, 2 through 4 in the message. Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. You know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. I feel like saying that to some folks sitting in this room right now. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Don't exit the endurance contest before the finish line. Work through this cycle until whatever God's trying to do in your life can be complete and he can look at you and say, you are ready now for the next level in your life. Don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature and well-developed, not deficient in any way. So then, Paul said, we're happy because of the hope we have. We also glory in our sufferings. Sufferings works perseverance. Perseverance works uh, character. Some translations say experience. And then he says, then we come back to hope again, which is exactly where we started. That's the final part of the cycle of hope is if we start with hope and we allow this process to be worked in our lives, we always come back to hope. And I would say this for you. In order for, for this thing to work in our lives, we always have to be hoping for more. We never get to a place that's just static where we say, this is it, now it's over. <laughs> because then you, your life isn't what it was meant to be. And so you, pro you may be going through this cycle in your marriage in one way, and your business in another way, and in some other dream that you're chasing in another way, different places in each situation. But you have to make sure that you are always trying to come back to a hopeful place. Let me close with this. Uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, I had, um, I had lunch with Francis Hesselbein. Francis uh, is, a, is, a, is a friend of mine, actually has been a friend to our church. She's actually been here to speak. Uh, she's a pretty amazing woman. 
Um, Francis was the CEO of the Girl Scouts of America for, I don't know, maybe 20 years. Uh, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She transformed the Girl Scouts of America uh, during the uh, uh, 70s, 80s, early 90s, as I remember it. Um, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Clinton in 1998, our nation's highest civilian award, uh, for her work in, in, uh, in women's empowerment, in diversity issues, and other things. Uh, she was a protege of Peter Drucker. If you know anything about the science of leadership management, Drucker is the father of modern leadership science. And Drucker called Francis, I've actually seen, you can see this in, in, uh, in, in, in a number of places actually, he called her the most effective leader he had ever seen. And when Drucker uh, turned his foundation, the Peter Drucker Foundation, over to someone, he turned it to Francis. And now, in fact, it's called the, 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 the Hesselbein Foundation at the University of Pittsburgh at some graduate school, which is where she attended college. She's amazing. She, uh, she was the first woman featured on the cover of Business Week magazine. Um, she was the first non-military and first female chair of the leadership uh, program at West Point. I mean, I could go on and on. It's crazy, okay? And, um, but here's the thing that's really important to know. She's 103 years old. And that's just a few weeks ago at her Park Avenue office. 103 years old. So she was born in 1916. All right? And we spent three hours together over a, a wonderful meal, sitting in her office, looking at all the memorabilia. I have several stories probably you'll hear me tell in coming months about this. I wrote a leadership post about this recently in my leadership blog, and I hope some of you read it. Um, but but here, there are a lot of things that happened at that meeting that were impressive, but here's one of them. At some point, she said to me, she said, she said Terry, she said, uh, what, 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 do you see, what do you see for yourself five years into the future? And I answered her questions as, as well as I could. And then I looked at this 103-year-old woman and I said, Francis, what do you see? What do you see for yourself in five years? And she leaned back and she said, I see a bright, bright future. Now, by the way, she said bright twice. She, she might have said it three times. She didn't just see a bright future. She saw a bright, bright future. It occurred to me, here is a woman who has seen everything you can imagine. She's lived through two world wars. Her office is down the street from, from up the street from 9-11. She, she broke glass ceilings and experienced tremendous rejection. And she's suffered the, 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 the loss of a husband and the loss of a son and the loss of uh, nearly, if not all, of her contemporaries. This is not a naive Pollyanna woman to sit here at the age of 103 and to talk about a future that's a bright, bright future. And it just occurred to me those among us who are truly developed as human beings and especially followers of Jesus as Francis is, somehow or another, in spite of what we go through in life, we always hope for more. I sat with her for three hours that day. She didn't say one negative word 
about anything. The food was great. The weather was great. The service was great. The view out the window, which she mentioned a couple of times, was great. The people she knows is great. She's, she was a picture of her, of her. She had had a relationship with every U.S. president forever. She liked every one of them. This is what was great about this one. This is what was great about this one. Republican, Democrat, whoever. She just said just everything she, she, she saw only ponies. Her life was full of hope. And somehow or another, by God's grace, we all need to constantly cycle back in our lives where we get up every day and say, I see a bright, bright future. So would you stand with me, please? Some of you are saying, I see a bright, bright future. He's finally finished. Say this with me. Would you say, I see a bright, bright future. Here, though I'll pray the benediction formally in a minute, here's a scripture I hope that you'll focus on this week, Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's my prayer for you this week, that you will overflow with hope. This Christmas season, let's overflow with hope.